I want to say thank you to my wife Laurel. She always puts this service together uh, as far as the order of service and getting the volunteers. Uh, as I'm thanking my wife Laurel, I also want to say thanks for putting me right after that song <laughs> because that song is just so overwhelmingly meaningful to me um, that it's just hard for me to sing at times when I think of the greatness of God's love. And now I get to come up here and speak uh, after that. So that was good. I appreciate that, hon. Thanks for that. <laughs> I told you earlier, we've been talking about what do you see when you look in a mirror, and uh, what do you see? I mean, if you could look in a mirror, and the mirror didn't show you your physical appearance, but it showed you kind of who you are, what would you see? Some people might look and say, I see someone, I see someone who could use a little comfort. My life's been kind of rough lately, and that might be a good thing. Somebody else might look in the mirror, and they might say, I see someone in that mirror that needs forgiveness, because man, I've done a dumb, dumb thing. And so you might be feeling that way this evening. Someone else might look in the mirror and they might say, I just see someone who needs God. Pastor Steve, when you say that song is emotional to you and it just speaks to you, I, I don't feel that. I, that's, I just don't feel that thing. And why, what is that? You might see any kind of thing when you look in the mirror. The good news is whatever you see when you take an honest look in the mirror, that's exactly what Jesus sees. Because he sees you as you are. And uh, he came. He came because he saw those things about you. I'm a Sealer fan, so I'm in mourning right now. You understand? Right? It was a hard evening last night when I watched the end of that game, right? As a Sealer fan, I've gone to two or three games. I can't remember now. Um, I guess I've gone to two games. And both times it was the Ravens. Tim and I went when Tim was younger. And then Esther and I went when Esther was uh, um, in high school, senior high. And uh, someone gave us tickets. And yeah, we'll take those anytime. We're always there for you if you have tickets to get rid of. I remember, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that goes to Steeler games often, so when I went there, I said to Esther, you know what, let's just go down, we'll eat at Bettis' restaurant, and we'll go right into the game. You know what's wrong with that thinking, right? There's about 60,000 other people thinking the very same thing, right? And, and so we got there, and surprisingly, we got in to Jerome Bettis' restaurant. He's retired by this time, and there we are, we're actually in there. We couldn't find a seat, but we were standing in there, and I looked at the door, and there came these really big guys surrounding a guy that wasn't all that tall, but he was big. And I said to Esther, that's Jerome Bettis. And it was. And Jerome came in and he walked. He's walking right here. And he's walking, he's walking, and he's walking. He's like, I was this close to him. It's like, you know, this close. I was really close to him. And this is what he did. As he's walking by me, he's kind of walking like this, you know, walking, and I'm standing over here. And he goes, hey. Just like that, smiled, hey. Just like that. You know what I did? I said, hey, back at you. That's the way I remember it. <laughs> but probably what I did is said, Esther, he said hey to me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that's what I really did at that moment because it was just amazing to, for me, a Steeler fan, to be this close, this close to Jerome Bettis. That was a cool thing. It was a cool thing when Bettis came near. It is a very cool thing that God came near. He came to earth in a person of Jesus Christ. He came, God, in the flesh. Joy to the world who has come. The Lord has come. Why? Why did he come? 
Now, there's a lot of answers to that question, and a lot of them are right. I just want to give you three reasons that Jesus came. The first reason is this. He came near to give comfort to us. He came near to give comfort to us. When I think of God coming near, over and over again, I think of Psalm 1834. Psalm 1834 says this. It says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. (laughs) He is, he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, there are brokenhearted people all around you. There are brokenhearted people at school. There are brokenhearted people in a grocery store. There are brokenhearted people who will be sitting around a table with you during this holiday season. There are brokenhearted people who are sitting right here with you. Maybe you're one of them. Brokenhearted. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. I'm kind of guessing that during this holiday season, a number of us might look on the past year, or maybe even the past couple years, and say, that's me. I'm kind of one of those brokenhearted. Because I lost something, or I lost someone who was close to me. And, and, it's, and it's really hard. Thanksgiving was hard, because there's an empty chair. We didn't go the same place. Christmas is hard because that person isn't here. They're not, we lost them. And I have had people, good people, say to me, as a pastor, they will say to me, when I say, how's it going? What are you doing this Christmas? They'll say, I'm just going to be glad when Christmas is over because the holidays are really hard. The holidays are really hard. And to those people, I would say, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And I would say this, I would say, don't skip Christmas. If you're going to skip a, a, a holiday because you're brokenhearted, skip Thanksgiving, skip New Year's, skip Halloween, you know, don't skip the first, say, buck season, but the other, you know, but, and don't, don't skip Christmas because Christmas is the, the holiday that tells us God came near. It's a holiday that says to us that God left the ivory palaces and came into this world of woe to be near to us. God came near. Think about that passage. Think about what it, what it doesn't say about God. When it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and it says he saves those who are crushed in spirit, here's something it doesn't say. If you're dealing with some kind of pain, God has a sermon for you. It doesn't say that. Here's something else it doesn't say. It doesn't say when you're crushed in spirit, God wants you to buck up and take it like a man. It doesn't say that, right? Here's something else it doesn't say. It doesn't say God lectures those who are struggling and brokenhearted. What it does say is that he's close to the brokenhearted. He is like that friend that you have that when you are suffering will come and just sit quietly with you while you drink a cup of coffee together and maybe not say a whole lot. He's like that buddy you have that when you've taken a hit in your life, says, hey, why don't you and me go fishing? And he just goes fishing with you. And in that closeness, you realize a degree of of healing. That's who God is. That's what he is like. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I can't tell you how he does that, but I can tell you that he does that. And the reason I can say that is because I've seen him do that in the lives of other people. I have seen people who have suffered great loss, who have looked to God and come out of that and lived well afterward because God saves us who are crushed in spirit. I know because I felt it 
I've never been crushed in spirit. I, I can be pretty dramatic, and you might think I'm crushed in spirit. But honestly, I, I haven't. I haven't been. But I can tell you that God has rescued me when I felt like I'd been crushed in spirit. He has breathed life into me when I felt that I couldn't go on. That's why he comes near. He comes near to comfort. Let me give you a second reason. I told you there's three. Here's number two. God comes near to save us. You know, we just read most of the Christmas story here, and along the way, there's a passage where Joseph is met by an angel who gives him some counsel. You know what happened with Joseph, right? He found out that the girl he's engaged to be married to is expecting. Joseph didn't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that. What would you, what would you do? It wasn't me. What's going on here? And God, in his grace, sends an angel to Joseph. And that angel says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a child, and you are to name his name Jesus. Do you know why? Why Jesus? I think Steve would have been a good name. Why Jesus? Because Jesus means salvation. It means God saves. It means Savior. You'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that's what Jesus does. His very name expresses his mission, that he came to save us from our sins. And he does this by taking guilt that doesn't belong to him, it belongs to us, and placing it on his, his own back. So that Peter can write, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's a deal you can't afford to pass up. He comes near to bring salvation to us. Comes to take our guilt. Comes to take our shame. Comes to purchase our forgiveness. And you experience that when in your heart you turn to Him. When in your heart you say, I'm sick of the way I'm living. I want to follow Jesus. I believe He paid for my sins. You experience that forgiveness. It's interesting to me, you know, the Christmas story appears several places in the Bible, different elements of it. What you heard tonight was mostly Matthew and Luke, because they tell the shepherds, the angels, Mary, the Magi, all that sort of thing. When John tells the Christmas story, he leaves those elements out, and he addresses it from a little more of a spiritual perspective. And John says this, in the midst of his narrative about Jesus being born, Jesus coming to earth, he says this, he says, Jesus came to his own. But his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God, sons and daughters of God. Yeah. That is why he came, so that you could belong to him, so that you could be free from your guilt and free from your shame, and so you could walk with him. So number one, Jesus came near to comfort. Number two, Jesus came near to save us. Number three, God has come near so that he might know us and we might know him. Now, I know Jerome Bettis. I've met him personally. We spoke together. Hey. Hey, back at you. But I don't really know Jerome Bettis. I don't. I know Dave Clark. Dave knows me. Dave knows my strengths. I know his weaknesses, and I like it that way. <laughs> Dave knows my weaknesses as well. God knows me, and I know him. 
I do know his strengths, and in him I find no weaknesses. He knows my weaknesses, and in them he desires to produce strength. He came so that he would know you and so that you would know him. Christianity isn't about having your theology right and your doctrine all straight. A lot of people might, might want you to think that because they wear that kind of as a badge. I got my, my theology badge. See that? They kind of wear that that way, right? Christianity isn't about knowing information. It is about knowing a person. And that person is the God that made heaven and earth, who came to earth in the person of Christ Jesus and died on the cross, went into the grave, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And he did that so that he could know you personally and so that you could know him personally. Here's some things that God knows about you. First, he knows that he made you. He knows that you were made in his image, that he crafted you. And that is a biblical reality for you to cherish. I was made by God. And God cherishes that biblical reality as well. He is delighted that he made you. Every day of creation, at the end of each of those days, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he creates humankind, he adds an extra word to the sentence, this is very good. That's you. That's something God knows about you, is that he made you, and he takes delight in that. The second thing he knows about you is you're not perfect. He recognizes that about you. I don't know, maybe you are perfect. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me, though, and I've made a lot of bad choices in my life. I can stand right here and tell you, I have done things of which I am very ashamed. Very ashamed. I don't know if you have, but I have. Oh, that's a lie. You have, too. (laughs) And you know you have, right? Yeah. All of us have that, and God knows that. It is not God's fault that you are not perfect, but he has decided to make it his responsibility that you are not perfect. He has decided that he will own your guilt, and he will take away your shame. Because number three, he knows that you need forgiveness. When it comes to our sense of guilt and shame, (laughs) we human beings tend to do one of two things with it. Number one, we pretend it's not there. There are a lot of us, you know, we talk about, well, you know, I don't really have that big a problem. I mean, no one says, I never do anything wrong. Maybe somebody does, but we'll throw them out. Most of the time what we say is, well, it's not that bad. You know, not that, I don't do anything that really bad. I do a it's no worse than anybody else. Okay, that's the first thing we do. We either deny our guilt, pretending it isn't there, but we know it is and we hate it. Or else, number two, we indulge it and pretend it doesn't matter. And we live lives that we know are not pleasing to God, but we pretend that that doesn't bother us. God offers a third alternative. And the alternative that he offers is you don't have to pretend that you don't have guilt and you don't have to, to cave into it and live in a way that you know does not bring honor to yourself or to anyone else, least of all to God. The third alternative is you can give it to Jesus. And he takes your guilt and he takes your shame and he nails it to his cross. He separates you from it. Those are some things that exist because God knows about you. He knows that he made you. He knows that you're not perfect. And he knows that you need forgiveness. There are some things you should know about God. You should know that he loves you desperately, deeply, deeply. How many of you are dads? Put up your hand if you're a dad. Yeah, there's a lot of us, aren't there? Yeah, Hold that hand up there. 
I would dare to say, Dad, that you would go ahead and say, cut that off before you would allow any of your children to be hurt, seriously hurt. I'm looking at a guy, Robbie, go ahead, put your hands down. Robbie, how long have you been a dad? Almost two years. When I said that, he just nodded like, yeah, don't mess with my daughter. I really pity the 16-year-old boy that's going to show up in about 14 years, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You protect that girl, Dad, right? The love of a father is intense. My son is here tonight. Tim, I would give my right arm. I would give my life for you. That is what a father, a good father, would do. That is how much, but even more, that your Heavenly Father loves you. The depth of his love is fantastic. And that makes it easy to come clean with him. I don't have to go to God and and say, I have this sin to confess, and I'm really pretty sure you're going to be so mad you're going to kick me. He won't. He won't. He died for that sin, and he loves you. He wants you to come clean with it so you can get it off your conscience, get it off your mind. Second thing you should know about God is he showed his love by sending Jesus to die for you. For you. That's great love. I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but I'm a grandfather. I am, yeah. If you're not part of Kerwinsville Alliance, you don't know, I mention that about every other week, that I'm a grandfather. And when I think of my grandson, Zach, he is so much cuter than your grandkids. (laughs) You know? And I think of how my heart feels about my grandson. If you were in trouble, and it would cost his life for you to live, I'd start writing your funeral this afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to give him up. But God, but God showed his love for you by giving his only begotten son so that you need not perish because he would. That's what can get you clean. That's what can get you through. He alone can forgive and remove your shame. And that happens when you draw near to him. You know, drawing near to the God who has come to draw near to you is not rocket science. It's just a matter of looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I do see a couple problems there. Man, there's a couple things I ought to be ashamed of. There's a number of things I need to be forgiven for. You look in the mirror, you see, I'm just not who I wish I was. What do I need to do about that? You need to go to the one who made you and sent his son to transform you. You go to him and you say, I'm sorry. Thank you for coming near, for being born in Bethlehem, living this perfect life, Jesus, and going to the cross to die for me. How foolish I am to have neglected taking advantage of that until this point in my life. I will now. I turn my heart toward you. Please forgive me for my sins. I will follow you. And when you do that, a beautiful thing happens. He enters your life and he walks with you. He talks with you. He cares for you. And when you look in the mirror and you see one who has been transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is what he predestined for you, according to Romans 8. I want to pray for you that that would be a reality in your life. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am not who I should be. And for that, I am deeply sorry. I do not like being who I should not be. I want to be the person you created me to be. I need to be forgiven. I need to be transformed. I need to change my direction. I believe that you, Jesus, came, were born, laid in a manger, lived a life on my behalf, and died on my behalf so that I could be forgiven. Thank you for doing that. Please forgive me based on that sacrifice, your sacrifice. I turn my heart toward you and I will follow you. 
It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.